Welcome to Humanity Evolve with your host, Catherine Colarco. This program will bring your life, family, and community together by focusing on the new technologies and innovations that define your world in an open and relaxed forum of ideas and discussion. Now, here is Catherine Colarco. Welcome to today's show. We are going to be talking about the brain always wins. Human performance starts with health. And today I'm talking with Dr. John Sullivan, and we're going to chat about elite performance and the brain. And a lot of people think, oh, elite performance, it's all about mental toughness and grit and, you know, just going and going and going. And and today we're going to talk about it's really about human resilience and and it's about brain health and daily habits and having that opportunity to measure and get feedback and get sleep you know these are things that we need that elite athletes are doing to perform well and uh john and i've known each other for a while and he's incredibly impressive around being a sports scientist and a clinical sports psychologist and his work with national teams like the nfl one of the uh major nfl teams if i may say and he's also worked with national national basketball association soccer uh premier english premier league a uh, football league and also Olympic teams, law enforcement, and military. And I think what's going to be great about the conversation today, John, is we're going to dive into how we can learn from elite performances and how can we talk about improving our health and and learning from what elite athletes have actually done. John, welcome to the show. It's wonderful to have you here. Oh, it's great to be here. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Thank you. So, so tell us, John, how a little bit about your background and, and how you got into sports and sports psychology and what sort of drove you into this area and, and a bit about the background and your history. That's a great question. I think it's, you know, we always forget how much we can learn from those origin questions. Like, how did we get started in things? Because, you know, it reinforces uh, the journey for many people. And, uh, you know, there may be some of your listeners that are starting out and thinking about, you know, what sort of things and what sort of passions they have. I mean, for me, it's it started with I, I was an athlete in multiple different sports, which you see a lot less of, which is unfortunate because it really much helps learn transferable skills away from sport, but also keeps you healthy and learn really good good, good skills and performance in this in, in the sport you eventually decide to focus in on. Right. And for me, I was uh, played everything. Um, my, my grandparents were right from Italy and Ireland, so I grew up on a heavy dose of American sports, but European-based sports. And in college, I was a Division One athlete focused in track and field and cross country. And there was always this piece of asking some of the most powerful questions of why. Yeah. You know, you know how can I be faster? It, it must be more than the simple calculation of, uh, you know, how much my heart can be stronger, my lungs can have output. This thing between my ears must have something to do with the performance. And, and in that, I was lucky enough to have a real good mentor at undergrad uh, who was a clinical psychologist and sports psychologist that fed that interest, but also was able to show, you know, hey, if you're going to be a good sports psychologist, you really have to be a good clinical psychologist because in your opening, you said all human performance doesn't matter what we talk about in sport or in life. It's based on human health. Right. And I loved your intro because it touched on some of the false narrative that people grow up with about it's a trait. Right. Only special people have it. No, not true at all. Yeah. Yeah. 
What do you mean by that? It's like it, it's a special trait. You mean like you can that this is the, you can learn to be a great athlete, or is it something that you're actually naturally born with? Or what do you mean by that? Well, sport and all performance, whether we talk about away from sport, I mean, you're performing, you're performing right now. I am. I'm trying to connect with you. We're trying to have a good conversation. Your listeners and whatever they do in their walk of life, they're asked to uh, every, you know, in any given moment to give their best and be focused. Right. Uh, it's, it's brain first. And when you mention mental toughness and grit, there are false narratives. They, mm. They're pretending as if you, if you have this one trait, I'm tough. Right. Then I can equate to being a better performer. And we know the research is false or it's very, very weak at best. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, grit is completely false. So Angela Duckworth, that, that research has been shown to be quite false by, by a, a, a great researcher out of Indiana University, uh, Dr. Credo. And he, he did some analyses of, again, this doesn't amount to anything. And we can get deeper into the science on that. But the belief is, wow, I just have to have this isolated piece when high performance is multifactorial. What I mean is, to your point, it's many factors that all right. of us, many of them, we have control over. And and with the false narratives, we're saying, well, only certain people have them, or it's it's just a certain few steps we have to do. No, everything is a process, and it doesn't have to be huge, but it has to be focused. Hmm. And and mental toughness and grit pretend like, no, you just need one or two things, and then you're good. That's the truth. That's the truth. Exactly. Life isn't really that simple. (laughs) No, no. I love you're laughing at that, but it's so interesting how sport and everyone outside of sport wants to believe so desperately that we can funnel things down to such simple concept and and it, and it seems to make sense. It has a, 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 a false be, uh, illusion of being true. And it's fueled by, yeah, I want to believe that's true, but it really doesn't have much weight. Huh. So is this something that you kind of, you, you when you were an athlete and then got into sports psychology, was this something that you were uh, aware of at the time? Is this like, oh, I understand that this is a dynamic system and how can I optimize that system? Or had you, you know, what enlightened you to actually look at it from a wider, broader picture? I love that question. It's a really fantastic question. And, and yes, when I was coming up and studying uh, psychology and sports psychology and being an athlete, you know, I was really encouraged to question things. To mm. For me, um, anyone can be a scientist. Um, it's, yeah. it's not about owning a role. It's about the way we engage with our world and question things respectfully to, right. to have lifelong learning. And so uh, that was the predominant theory when I was coming up was mental toughness. And I, and I was just questioning it. And I had a professor and a mentor that really was, no, question that. And, mm. and you come up with questions about why this doesn't make sense and where the weaknesses are in the research, but also it led me to this, as you were saying, a broader understanding that how, if we're born with the most complicated and sophisticated survival system in the known universe, we're born tough. Right. So it's the training process. It's not a trait of mental toughness or grit. It is how you develop the person through a whole process of training that allows for adaption and growth. So to me, it just didn't make sense. Yeah, and it, when and did you when you did you apply it while you were actually when you were an athlete yourself? You realized this comprehensive aspect of increasing performance, or was it something that you were able to really get into as you became, uh, you know, into your PhD and or into your your work as a as a sports clinician? 
it's a a great follow-up question is like you know how did that develop and and to be honest with you you know my journey I think honors the things that we make mistakes in our development of anyone in the sense of if we look at development and education or in academia in sport in business and industry we fuel another false narrative that mistakes and failure should never be you know you know should never happen Mm. well and actually to your heart of your question as an athlete I broke the rules of human Mm. performance that rest and recovery are critical factors to adaption and growth because I grew up in a in, in an environment which we still all grow up in more is better right but from those and to your point and sitting back in academia and learning and then looking at the, the dynamics of myself and others you can see that that's a rule of uh, of, of brain-based behavior we break all the time mm. more is not better better is better Timing and dosing and context really matters, but no, as an athlete, um, no, I broke I broke those rules over and over until <laughs> I figured out. Wait a minute, this ain't working. But that is essential. That was yeah, my exactly. process. Right, right. It's almost like you had to go through the fire to go. Wait a second. What do I have to do to not get burned so much? You know. So, and uh, and and how can you? How, what can you learn from this? And I'm fascinated by the fact that you worked with five national experts with the NCAA sports and medicine on a handbook, um, and that led to the first consensus statement regarding treatment of mental health issues with student athletes. Can you talk a little bit about what drove that and what kind of were the outcomes? of it because I'm fascinated by the aspect of mental health and athletes you know no that's a, that's a great question is and it's one that's it's gaining a voice and in into your listeners and to you I, I often don't use the term and actually we've talked about this before, I don't use the term mental health and it's it's because it's not honest with the science and, and because it is filled with so much bias it require it, it, it almost initially makes people lean back as opposed to ah. lean it stops people opening up their mind. It's really brain health. Right. So, you know, as you let in, you said health is the foundation of performance, and it is. But even more so than that, brain health is the foundation. And since we're wired for, for survival, much of what we see in what we categorize as mental health are signals from the central nervous system about a breakdown. But we're taught not to listen. But they're actually signals to move towards resiliency. And you used that term earlier. And that's not a new buzzword. That's a word that comes from neurophysiology. That we get signals, like anxiety and depression, that are just signals. And they're teaching us that something's not right. And we need to engage in behaviors or choices that are going to allow us to rest, recover, and become more resilient. But what we teach people, that's a sign of weakness. Mm. And so... By that consensus statement, it was the first foreway into teaching sport, which I think sport's a microcosm of life. So we're teaching, you know, sport can be a big teacher to the rest of the world. Yeah. And it was the first foreway into you are setting up environments which are causing these signals because you're overtraining individuals and you're putting them in unsustainable environments. If you want high performance, we have to change the environment and also work with individuals to teach them how to be more resilient, gaining behaviors about rest and recovery. Mm -hmm. So we had to use the mental health terminology because it's what people were familiar with. Right. But, But in my book, The Brain Always Wins, we look to shift that 
because it allows us to engage in a point of strength, and it really is brain health. Hmm. So what do you mean by brain health? What What is the components of that? Sure. Um, really, brain health is about everything we do loads or serves the brain. It either takes away energy from the brain or gives energy back. Uh, the brain is a very selfish organ from an energy standpoint. It only produces about 15 watts. And to put that in perspective, so when we look at supercomputers like IBM's Watson, who has competed against experts like in chess, they, that, that machine to compete against human beings is, is burning about 100,000 100, watts to 500,000 watts an hour just to compete mm. with our processing speed our decision-making speed. And the human brain is 15 watts. So it's very protective. And so when we overuse and underfill, if you will, a theoretical gas tank, then we're starting to work towards deficits of the brain being able to run all the other 11 systems that it runs, cardiac, thoracic, orthopedic. You know, we look at certainly endocrine and so on and so forth. So, Brain health is about creating autonomic balance, meaning rest, recovery, and being ready to handle stress the next day. That leads to resilience, which leads to growth. But what hmm. we do, more is better. We don't sleep. Right. We don't, we don't necessarily think of nutrition as it provides uh, an activation for producing neurotransmitters that commutes the brain. The, the stomach's considered the second brain. Right. They can't work without conjunction. And so brain health is about what do I do in my daily life to support our top-down model? We're a brain-first performer, except we learn about heart health, lung health. Hell, we know even more about colon health than we do about brain health. Hmm. Yet those serve the brain. So brain health refocuses on I have things every day that can produce resiliency. To go back to your initial where we started in. You can work on an athlete's speed, strength, you know, endurance, these common factors that most people understand. But if they're not sleeping, they don't have relative good nutrition, and they're not hydrating, you are training that individual to a point of breakdown. Hmm. You're not sharpening them. And if you think of the average American sleeps five hours, which is your sleep is your number one performance enhancer. Right. Now you have every other system downgraded. So they're not going to be as fast thinking. They're not going to solve things as well. They're not going to be as emotionally balanced, meaning they're going to be irritable or they're going to be you know, frustrated e- easily or they may be sad or anxious. And, and so they've put themselves into a position where performance is a much more difficult thing. Mm. So, and that's where you get kind of that burnout you're talking about, sort of the, the over, overtrained you know, and the performance decreases. Absolutely. And if you think about the American workforce or you think about, uh, you know, women in general who take a lot of the brunt of this when we look right. at dual roles that they, they have in taking care of families or taking care of others. And then also in the workforce that because we lack the knowledge about the brain, most people don't know much about the brain. We, mm. we, we don't teach about it academically. I, I'm pretty comfortable that if I didn't study it, I wouldn't know very much at all. But this is the seat of their ability to be resilient and respond to their environments and have a better quality of life. Yeah, so you know, it's advantage. Yeah, and it's it's actually you know something that I've studied for quite a long time with regard to autonomic nervous system balance. You know, with yeah. regard to 
increasing, you know, using HRV and breath and other modalities to help you balance your nervous system. And most people don't know this, but you, you're, you're tended, it's a little bit like driving a car, right? You drive a car and you've got your foot on the brake and the gas at the same time, you're going to really burn out the engine, right? So you need to know when to have the brake on and when to have the gas on and how to keep yourself in balance so that you're not overusing your energy. And it's almost like a like I, the way you're talking about it, it's it's like if you think about it in terms of is this using more energy for me or is it giving me energy? And uh, sleep is a huge giving energy. And I remember at, I remember at uh, CES there was a presentation and they showed sleep data for an elite athlete and for a CEO. <laughs> and mm-hmm. they they had the elite athlete was like clockwork. It was, you know, seven and a half to nine hours or it was like nine hours a night, you know, very elite athletes. So they needed a lot of sleep. And it was at the same hour day and, you know, wake, go to sleep and wake up. And the CEO, I think, averaged maybe four and a half hours and it was all over the map, right? It was yeah. three hours here, seven hours there. And it's really like, what are we asking ourselves to do with that with that state, with that depletion, you know, um, how are we able to operate our, our fullest function with that? So anyway, we're going to have to go to break. Unfortunately, right now we're going to we're going to talk about. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about how you merge technology, neuroscience, and biofeedback with sports uh, performance psychology and how can I as an individual use some of these insights to increase my overall function and brain health. So when we're coming back, we're going to be with John Sullivan and we're going to be talking about brain health and how it relates to your performance and the and also to sports performance. This is Catherine Calarco on Humanity Evolve. Join us after the break. Thank you so much. barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkgaard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkgaard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. This is Humanity Evolve with Katherine Calarco. To reach our show today, please call in to 1-866-613-1612. Again, that's 1-866-613-1612. Or you may send an email to info at ccalarco.com. Now, back to Humanity Evolve. Welcome back. This is Catherine Calarco on Humanity Evolve, and we're talking with Dr. John Sullivan. And he is the founder and CEO of Clinical and Sports Consulting Services and a, a major uh, contributor to athletes worldwide. And right before we 
we went to break, he was talking about resilience and brain health and how being mindful or aware of that and being able to train yourself so that you are uh, adjusting and keeping your resilience up. You know, uh, John, you mentioned a, a couple of stories about that. I'd love to hear more about this sort of conte- concept of resilience. Yeah, and, and, you know, that's a great question because I don't want listeners to leave away with there's no alternative to mental toughness and grit and resilience is, and it's a science-based, really looking at our science. It started with some really novel questions in some really difficult situations. When when researchers were looking at people that were in very traumatic situations, maybe it'd be domestic violence, maybe it'd be in war-torn countries, they're military, or they work as police officers and firefighters, why were they seeing a group? And most of your listeners have probably heard this term, have acute stress or PTSD. And then some weren't. The, the research was like, why are some developing this ability to not go down this disease path of being burned out, stale, and overregulated, as you were talking about with the breath rate and, and everything kind of unfortunately goes to survival mode. Right. And really what they started to understand with measures that are looking at their experience, but also looking at the brain, is that they were listening to the signals. And then, from like, upset stomach, increased heart rate, you know, feeling more pressure and stress, racing thoughts, and they would do something to calm themselves. And no one had taught them this. And they started to understand physiologically, to the point you were making earlier, we can intervene as long as someone has that feedback to understand their own signals, that I can change the impact of how my brain and then everything else responds. And then that leads into why technology is so Hmm. important. If you think about the first part of our conversation is nothing is more important than the human performer. And if you get that wrong, that humans are more important and you have to protect talent and preserve it, then you're starting off a good foot. And that's when technology and biofeedback and neurofeedback can really enhance that process because it helps them teach them how to have these skills. Then when stress rises, uh, things become difficult. They know how to respond to their own internal biological signals and then can do something that allows them to become calmer, focused and more energy efficient. And so right. technology is a huge service to us in this area. Hmm. So, t- like, do you do you have an athlete that kind of went through that, or an individual maybe in the military or, or uh, in the first responders that that actually, I mean, what did they do? What were some of the techniques that they used to kind of to counter this and to and to you know reset the res- their, their resilience and keep it keep it moving forward? I want to I want to go with the example you gave because breath rate controlling breath rate. Is, is, is something innately that we have. We're the only mammals that have it. We're the only mammals that actually can control our breath rate. And an example everyone has is everyone's laughed so hard right. that they've almost lost control, but then they catch their breath. Right. right. And, and we forget we have this evolutionary, <laughs> what we can tell is that's a survival skill. And when you were talking about just teaching breath rate control, yeah. so from a standpoint of working with um, you know military and working with first responders to your question, teaching them about before they go into an incident or in the middle of it, dropping their breath rate, slowing their breath rate down, doing diaphragmatic breathing, breathing from their core, they actually can change the dynamics of how they're able to perceive, decide, react, manage energy, and then emotionally connect with people that they may be having to serve or to protect 
mm-hmm. and we know if it goes the other direction where you can't control those things, decisions right. start to break down, your openness to people, protecting people breaks down, your decision making breaks down. So just going with that, and, and it's something we should be teaching our kids in schools. Right. This is powerful, and it's actually the the first learning piece of meditation. It's one of the reasons why meditation is so strong, is that it allows us to control brain connected to the heart, connected to the stomach by one nerve, the vagus nerve. And when you can control the center of your body and slow things down, and then you're trained to react in that environment, we make much better decisions. So to your point, yes, teaching that to first responders is critical. Yeah, and it, it's like, oh, what, you know, being in the digital health industry for so many years, I've seen how the ability to know your physiology and then be able to do something about it with some simple techniques or, you know, the data and an intervention or be able to do things that are good for you and know that they are good for you because then you can see the feedback that, wow, I slept better because, you know, I managed to get the bike ride and the walk in today, you know, or I, I meditated more and I was able to stay in more focused sense during the day and I think there's a there's a lot of knowledge that can be gained now that wasn't really evident to every individual as it is is now um and I yeah sorry I just the one of the things I think intuitively you were talking about intuition in terms of you know doing the right things and being body aware you know I I learned to scuba dive and scuba dive is all about breath control and I didn't really realize how great that was for being able to uh, teach myself uh, you know the the uh, paced breathing or you know being breath aware um, and also how to keep you know managing your breath so you can interact with wildlife so they're not uh, frightened away by you you know you you start to learn your interactions with other people and also on maintaining your energy in a foreign environment. Um, you know, those, there's a huge amount of uh, uh, skills that you learn by just the experience of doing something that I loved. And I think there's a lot of people out there that have those things in their life. And, and this is a great way to, to use your knowledge of elite athletes and your, your amazing work with everyone from Olympians to, to the military is really understand that you can apply those in your everyday life. Absolutely. You know, there isn't anyone that can't, but the, the piece of it, like you're saying, we only learn it in certain environments. Although some of your listeners may go, wow, I, you know, women, I think, tend to know this better than men. You know, childbirth, natural childbirth. What do they teach you to do? They teach you to regulate breath. Right. And I'm never going to argue with this, the experience of women saying, wow, it was painful, but with the breath, I was able to focus on something can control my modulation of pain, received, experienced, and then also focus on a process. But, but also, they may learn it, any of your listeners, in other environments, like you said, from scuba diving or yoga. And right. they're absolutely right. This is... This is, as we talk about in the book, The Brain Always Wins, this is wisdom of the village with 21st century science. We understand why it's powerful and right. why we should be teaching it. And, and actually, anyone in your, your listeners, in any athlete, if they experience being in the zone or enjoying the process or the, the process slows down or is easier, it's if you have a measurement on their breath rate, it's very, very focused and rhythmic in a way that it uses the least amount of energy and creates comfort. Even though the situation might be chaotic, they're comfortable. So there's a powerful import here um, that we, we should be teaching. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's a simple technique. And like you were saying with technology, um, we can dial it in even more, um, you know, like Spire. 
It's, mm-hmm. a, te- it's a piece of technology that is it, it fantastically designed. I've used it with uh, military, uh, with with uh, and by athletes who have to ski and shoot. I've used it with uh, certainly families of military when they're overseas. They have to manage the stress. It's not just the military soldier or operator, mm-hmm. but also uh, what we look at in sport. It's not just the stress of the sport. It's the total load, meaning life affects sport, sport affects life. That's for all of us. Life affects work, work affects life. And the Spire device is a little device you put on your belt, and it, and it measures in real time your breath rate. But it also allows you and triggers you when you need those breaks because it's picking up your breathing. It's become more stressed or more out of rhythm with conserving energy. Right. And so we can start to train you to be more aware of your internal signals from your brain that we've always been given, but we haven't paid attention to. And yeah. I've used that very effectively. And uh, uh, it's one of my favorite go-tos because oh, awesome. feedback allows us to really pick up the learning curves much quicker, much quicker. Yeah, is, you're absolutely correct on the, the ability to actually modulate our resilience and increase our neural capacity and, and, our, and our natural physiological state is, is enhanced by the use of technology or these breathing techniques or understanding, uh, you know, what is happening. And I, I learned recently, I, I, you know, from wearing the Spire device, I, I was in, under an extremely stressful situation um, and with, um, you know, my mom was not well and I was trying to out a bunch of stuff and and I and I got was super stressed right and then I looked at my breathing pattern and it had gone into that slow calm mode and it literally I was able to shift into it in order to go okay now you need to manage your state and stay you know reserve you know stay don't allow yourself to escalate out of this and it was amazing to see how how I was able to hold that state during this really stressful period of time so that I didn't become uh, negatively affected by it in a from a physiology point of view afterwards. So, you know, tell us a little bit about, you know, your work with technology, neuroscience, and biofeedback in context with the, the, the sports teams that you've worked with. Well, you triggered an example uh, perfectly of some of the work I've done with surgeons and pilots. Their oh, performance. yeah. And if you think about that context, if they fail, we're deeply in trouble. Right. And the way you described it is we will do simulations. Simulation is really uh, a really important part of high-performance training is that you try to get close to what the experience will be or maybe even train above it. Maybe right. Maybe there's more chaos, more noise. And we will wire people up to look at their biorhythms, respiration, heart rate, heart rate variability, maybe even brain wave and, and, and temperature, core temperature. And we will, we will work them through a simulation and then stop it when they start to become overwhelmed. Let them regulate, maybe through uh, you know brief meditative break, maybe through you know breath rate control. Then them have them reengage. Slowly dose the stress, and as I said earlier, timing and dosing is important on the brain with everything. But slowly dose the stress. So what happens is is they become more resilient and can then have an increased capacity to perform beyond what they may ever experience, simulating way beyond any stress that that one could really kind of think about. And so what we call that is hormetic dosing. And everyone probably listening has heard of homeostasis. Right. Hormetic dosing is slow dosing. And another way everyone knows, who's a little older like me, that when we first got a flu flu shot, it used to have a little bit of the flu in it. And that was to stress the, the, the central nervous system and 
the other 11 systems a little bit at a time. So we build up a, a, a rest cycle, a stress cycle, a rest cycle, a stress cycle, a rest cycle. So what ends up being is we're more resilient when faced with that you know, mm. virus. And so having worked with pilots, and a great example is, is Sully Sullenberger. Right. Many people remember with the movie that was just out, yeah. playing on the Hudson. Phenomenal. If you want to ever hear of a high performer, you can go on YouTube and listen to his FAA um, debrief. Right. You listen to the exact tape, never cracked his voice, never got frustrated, never showed fear. Why? Because that was trained. Mm. You can train that. But it goes through dosing of simulation. We do it in sport, too, and I do it in the military with live fire simulation. In sport, we may put them in a situation where we will make sure something fails or we'll create the environment very hostile, very loud, very noisy. And, and, perfect, and, and, and make them, put them in a situation where they're, we're going to fail and then see how they react to that. And then break the, you know, put a break, time out, and allow them to calm down so huh. they can re-engage. And so that's hormetic dosing. We've all done that. But that's right. a, it's a powerful way to allow them to engage in a safe environment, reduce injuries, and then move the brain's capacities to a higher level along with right. all the systems. Right. That's really interesting that you say move the brain to a higher capacity to handle it because you're seeing, you know, athletes that are like microseconds are making a difference and the, the performance ability of some of these people is phenomenal. And and the, the challenges that pilots and military and others have is is overwhelming. And so you're saying that that we as human beings can actually increase our mental capacity to handle these stressful situations without losing our ability to deal with regular life, right? You're not creating this, this, this sort of desensitized human being. It's really more about your, your capacity to handle the the pressure or what's going on. It's It's a great way you framed it. Like often when I'm working with athletes, I'm always training them that these are transferable skills. And the amazing thing is, is that you become an expert in one area that unless we remind people through a training process that certain skills are transferable, we won't do it. Mm. We don't see the pattern recognition. So you almost have to train the pattern recognition as you can. So with my collegiate athletes, so right. many of them have experiences. All of your listeners have, I have in academia. I prepared for exam and then I draw a complete blank when I go in. Mm-hmm. We feel first then think if we get overwhelmed emotionally with my anxiety, it's harder to um, reach our memory stores. It's harder to um, really get access to short-term working memory, long-term memory where we've stored it. But if we calm the emotions, it all comes back. Right. So, so we'll that- train them when we're working on pre-competition anxiety. You can do this for you know, exams. You can right. do this for when you have to do speeches and presentations. And so that transferable skills, yes, we're never just playing. We're loading the brain in a training environment, but we have to remind people of that. So even in work environments, more work environments have moved towards what we're talking about, a training environment that we're we're encouraging naps. Why? Because it enhances their productivity, enhances creativity, enhances attention. But we do a cycle of work with a cycle of rest or Mm -hmm. a cycle of different stimulation. So we can improve that, but that same rhythm will help them outside of their work life. Hmm. So the, the the technique of actually, you know, challenge, rest, challenge, rest, is is there a particular technique? And we've only got a few minutes before the next break, but the is there a certain technique that you can quickly go to for that? 
you know, one of the things I would say too is is you know, elite performance is not mass produced because there is neurodiversity. But benchmarks that you're talking about that are kind of just benchmarks in general are the sense of it, it perceived exertion. So if you feel like you've had a really difficult output, like you put a lot of energy into something, then you try to get your recovery equal to that. And recovery means you've enhanced and bring energy back. Resting means a lowering of energy. Recovery means energy coming back. And so you want to allow people to understand if you've perceived a hard effort, then you need to perceive a good recovery. And that's huh. an easy benchmark. Yeah. So you actually, you actually, it, the perception or the feeling of the recovery, the, the fact that you are, are build, you feel like you're building your energy or you feel like you're actually taking a re- rest is, is the measure that you use to, to balance out the exertion. It can be. Uh, yeah. We always want to do subjective measures getting input import from the person like hey this is what it felt like and then objective measures but if we can't perceived exertion has shown a pretty good measure as well as emotions so going back to what you said feel emotions are the are are evolutionary survival skills that show us are we balanced in energy and are we becoming more resilient so both of those can be really good metrics from a subjective standpoint that people can use I love that. So it's like a you you uh, you take an inventory both of your emotional state and how you're feeling about things, and also your your mental acuity or even the feedback mm-hmm. or biofeedback that you get from um, devices or you know things around you. Uh, so we are going to take a break. So uh, during this break, everyone, let's build energy or take a rest. So let's enjoy this break uh, from our sponsor Spire, and we'll have an amazing opportunity to take a deeper dive on what you can do and how you can adapt some of these techniques to build performance in your own life. This is Catherine Calarco on Humanity Evolve with Dr. John Sullivan. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. This 
This is Humanity Evolve with Catherine Calarco. To reach our show today, please call in to 1-866-613-1612. Again, that's 1-866-613-1612. Or you may send an email to info at ccalarco.com. Now, back to Humanity Evolve. We're back. This is Catherine Calarco with Humanity Evolve, and I've got Dr. John P. Sullivan with me today. And we're talking about resilience and performance and actually increasing brain health and being able to modulate or understand when you need to rest and when you need to challenge yourself. And there's a lot of us out there that are naturally, you know, we're, we can take on more, we handle more, we've got, we're calm under pressure, you know, and, and, and yet, the you, you have to have that awareness and i and i we were talking during the break about it's good for you to be challenged. It's actually good for you to go out. And I actually feel better if I do things that kind of scare me like a radio show. And and you keep you keep doing things like that. Or, or I love learning, like uh, constantly being curious. And I find that that, that, that that challenge of, you know, trying to run a marathon or doing a radio show or, uh, you know, getting in a relationship or, or uh, you know, growing a company, those challenges are very good for us. So, you know, John, how do you do those challenges and yet build in the the rest and recovery to manage the two at the same time? Catherine, I think you said it really, really, really well. I mean, we we do need challenges. We're wired for such things. Um, You know, we need it for the expansive of the brain growing. Um, Actually, uh, I often use this example when I'm working with groups and, you know, um, I'll say to them, okay, if I ask all of you and I'll pull the room and I'll ask, are, are any of you runners? Okay, if you are, add twice the amount. If I ask all of you for 15 days to run 20 miles every day, what are you going to feel like, uh, you know, on, on the 16th day? And most people are going to have responses like worn out, exhausted, I'm going to hate you as a coach, <laughs> things of that nature. And they should. I've just overtrained them. Right, exactly. And then if I ask them, okay, all right. Technically, from a cultural standpoint, you're going to think I'm going to be a better coach here, but let's play out the information here. If I ask you for 15 days to sit on the couch, watch some really bad daytime television that just melts your brain, you know, start, you know, eating, you know, more processed foods, uh, pick up a smoking habit and drinking habit. How are you going to feel on the 16th day? And they all look at me and they're like, yeah, no, not good. So we're wired that we oscillate. We're doing it right now as we inhale, that's stress, blood pressure goes up, brings oxygen, glucose, vitamins to the brain, and exhale is relaxation. That, we need stimulation. Right. We've learned that from, from working with stroke victims and my long-term work with concussions, is that, um, you know, we used to just stick them in a the dark room and say, don't do anything. What did happen? They all got yeah. weaker. Right. Why? We need a level of stimulation and a level of rest. And as long as we can keep that ratio in relative balance, going back to kind of a simple measure, what was your perceived exertion and then what's your emotional state? Then if you add other metrics like heart rate, heart rate variability, looking at the communication between the brain and the heart, you know, looking at other metrics such as that, EEG, brainwave, we can start to develop our, our knowledge about our biorhythms and our, and our symptoms, and they will start to correlate, wow, when I feel this, this is what it means from the objective data, and they're starting to really come together. So we can do it subjectively and do it objectively, but we are designed to oscillate. And if we don't, we get weaker. So we need challenges to grow. 
Yeah. Wow. That's so well said. I mean, I just love that aspect of living a life in rhythm. You know, it's like a, mm. it's like this ability to, you know, am I inhaling too long and, and I need to exhale or am I exhaling too long and I need to inhale and get off the couch or, or, you know, try something new. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it's kind of like this balance of life that we're kind of, that we are striving for. And so in terms of increasing performance, you know, are you saying challenge yourself a little bit more each day in order to build up that performance or is it more get aware, get that feedback, you know, pay attention to what's going on with you and then adjust based on that? I think you're touching on a really good point, you know, is there a pacing with this? And as I said earlier, I mean, elite performance is not mass produced. There's individual differences. But if I was to give it, you know, an overall answer to that, I think you touched on it. Helping someone increase their awareness about things that bring energy back or what their biological symptoms uh, uh, mean, like heart rate increases, you know, what their gut reactions are, if they have headaches, you know, uh, daily habits like hydration, which, you know, our brain doesn't register thirst until 3%, water weight loss at 1%, we lose cognitive ability and then perceptual ability. So when we touch on these building awareness, that's that's building a stronger foundation. So getting someone sleep stronger, getting someone's hydration awareness stronger, getting someone's nutrition awareness stronger, building from a place of strength. No one does all those poorly. There's places we're building from a place of strength and then adding some cues where they can start to monitor and understand their biorhythms, then adding another level of training tends to work out a little bit better because you're then building on a strong foundation. An example I'll give you, January 1 comes up. Everyone runs to the gym and what do they do? (laughs) They completely bury themselves and overtrain, disrupt homeostasis, disrupt hometic dosing, meaning I overdose, then I'm demotivated, I hate life, I'm miserable, I'm (laughs) sore, and then it's boom. And so building from a stronger foundation, and some of the uh, gyms around the nation have realized this, if we provide knowledge, build a stronger foundation, Guess what? The training isn't as hard and they develop a love and intrinsic motivation and an extrinsic. They get rewards and they just enjoy it. Right. And so that's that's a foundation that's much stronger. Mm. So a little bit similar to, um, you know, the the tiny steps concept of, you know, step by step or small steps to incrementally increase your your behavior change. And within two to six weeks, you're suddenly doing something different, but it hasn't felt like a huge, huge struggle to do that. Right. It's yeah, a, that's a nice translation. I think yeah. where that fails, though, is we don't teach people the science behind it. So it sounds Interesting. like just um, mumbo jumbo. Right. So we're wired for it. Yeah. So what do you mean by the science behind it? Is, you, you just said it. You said we're wired for that. And how, how are we wired for that? We're wired for easy wins due mm-hmm. to survival. Again, right. Going back to brain's energy management. Yeah. So we go back to that January 1 example where people overtrain. So what's the brain's reaction going to be to that? It is going to fire off a number of warning systems because our brain is risk avoidant. And if you're pushing the envelope of what you can sustain and your brain can sustain, it's going to fire off survival responses, anxiety, depression, demotivation. And so it's going to want to pull you away. Mm. So we're wired for easy wins, which leads to sustainability. And when we 
overtrain in that January 1 going to the gym example, what our brain is teaching us right there, we're not listening, but our brain is teaching us dose better. But what, mm. we're, what we're taught, because we don't, we're not taught anything about our brain, we just make assumptions about what it means. But it's actually teaching us to become more resilient and change the pattern to attempt easy wins. Right. So if you were doing, if you were going to, you know, January one, uh, the better option, what would that look like? It's a great question. Again, always got to give that caveat of individually based. Because yes, in of good course. sports science yeah. and sports medicine, we do assessment first. But it would all. But generally speaking, you would want to go. Okay, you want to identify strengths. Most right. people think when you're going to an assessment, any type of assessment, we're looking for weaknesses. From my standpoint, no. I'm never sitting with anyone from the standpoint of weakness because our brain is wired to survive. So That's not. So, cool. so I want to look for strengths. Yeah. And then look at where they're intrinsically motivated. What do they enjoy? Mm. Because one of the things about human motivation that we forget, stick and carrot has only gotten us so far. And in fact, it creates a lot more damage in our, in our economy, in our work environment, and in sport. But when we look at self-determined motivation, that is really more based on um, neuroscience and, and really looking at what do people enjoy? Emotions run the show. And so when we can engage in enjoyment, you give them choice and then you give them feedback loops through technology or just through feedback loops of perception of exertion or accomplishment or that emotion. How do you feel afterwards? And they create levels of a, a competency. Huh. We're more motivated. Right. And then the, la- the most important thing, which I should have stated first, is that do, do not load them too much where they cannot recover, mm-hmm. meaning you want to do that by some metrics like heart rate. Yeah. So they can they can see the feedback loop. So I know I'm not supposed to go above this range. And it should be easy and fun. But most people think training should be hard. And I should feel sore. Actually, that's a sign of overtraining. Huh. This is what we've learned in sports science. If, if your individuals, say, do a leg workout, your elite athletes, and they are just feeling so much leg soreness. And then we start doing objective measurements and we're seeing that the autonomic nervous system or the brain needs more time to recover to make that into muscle tissue or cardiac tissue. Then we know that we can't load them for 48 hours or 72. Huh. Instead, we're taught that's a sign of a workout, that soreness. No, it's not. It's a sign you overtrained. Hmm. Interesting, because this, and I like the idea of bringing joy into it, because I think it's super important for people to act, to have that positive emotional connection to the to the physical activity, because I think then you get that that double state. You know that we know that the state of love and appreciation and joy is is a, has such a strong restorative um, part of you, right? I mean, it's, it brings in the oxytocin. There's all mm-hmm. these things that help when you are in that state. So if you're also conditioning yourself to perform or to exercise to get more fit or whatever it is, if you're combining that with that positive uh, you know, emotion, you're actually reinforcing so many things uh, as, uh, and building, you know, building your strength uh, and, and physicality. And, uh, you're, you're exactly right. And that's the import of, of sports science and sports medicine to everyone. Yeah. That, that what they see on TV is sometimes not exa- you're not seeing the total process and everything right. requires a process and the details really matter that if you're designing an elite program you don't want your team demotivated due to the overworkload 
down to the most important parts of a season when they may be fighting towards a championship. That, right. that goes, there's two responsibilities there. For the program you put together, the education you give the athletes of well, their responsibilities on rest and recovery. But if you put a program together that, that breaks somebody, then yeah. anyone can be broken. You can break a Navy SEAL. Yeah. We are wired to survive only to a point because we need that oscillation of rest. Right, so I love it's that. program development. And we all yeah. can do program development that leads to these things. Yeah, right, exactly. Win championships. We've only got a few minutes left, at, or actually only one minute left. And I want to make sure that people know about your book and how to keep in touch with you. And so, so John, tell us the title of the book, where they can find it, and also how can they stay connected with you and, and continue this dialogue, the fascinating dialogue and such depth of experience that you have. Well, I appreciate that. You know, the, the name of the book is The Brain Always Wins, um, and it really, it, it, the name came out of the thing we're doing right now, a conversation that it, it occurred to me and my writing partner, Chris Parker, that as scientists, we need to do a better job of bringing this information that can improve people's lives and not just speak at the scientific level of 30,000 feet, but meet people where they're at. And we learn very little about the brain, and it's focused on brain health is the foundation of human performance because it is. And, yeah. it, and, it, and we do walk through people through a process, which we've used both that term back and forth, you and I today. And yeah. that process is based upon science, not something we invented. We right. stand on the shoulders of good science. And actually, it's an acronym we developed of where the research is the strongest about how we can develop in, you know, in this resiliency um, and this readiness for more and more stress. And so as they get into the book, it's very individual. And we tried to write the book so high performance is based individually. They can figure that process out. Um, but it's solidly based upon science. And then, you know, one of the things that I'm, you know, Chris Parker and I are so connected to is on service to others. Yeah. That the book uh, proceeds, many of the book's proceeds go to military veterans. Because much amazing. of what know about the brain is due to their, their sacrifice. Yeah due to the injuries they sustained, but yeah. but also the training they go through teaches us much about the limits of the brain and where we can go next. Right. And so we're, and speaking of going to next, I want you all to check out the website. Um, it, his book is called The Brain Always Wins. And the website for his organization is performancedocs.com. That's P-E-R-F-O-R-M-A-N. N-E-D-O-C-S dot com. Check it out. Dr. Sullivan, it's been amazing to have you on board. I appreciate your time and your extensive knowledge. We could talk for hours. Thanks, everyone. This is Catherine Calarco on A Humanity Evolve. Please stay connected. Please stay safe. And let's be more resilient next week. Take care. Thank you for joining Catherine Calarco for this week's edition of Humanity Evolve. Be sure to tune in again next Tuesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Women's Channel. We'll talk again then.